start this week in Luke chapter 1 with Mary's song. Uh, this is often known as the Magnificat. And it's a wonderful, wonderful song of praise written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We'll be in Luke chapter 1. Uh, I'd like to begin today by asking you a question. And the question I want to ask you is why do you do anything? Uh, why do you choose to do anything that you do? Pastor, I haven't had enough coffee to answer that question. Neither have I. Uh, according to Jonathan Edwards, who is one of America's great theological minds, one of our great minds in general, uh, he wrote in his incredible treatise called The Freedom of the Will that we, in every decision that we make, are always seeking to do that which will maximize our pleasure. Whatever we believe will please us most is what we pursue. In other words, we are seeking to be happy. We all want to be happy. But we recognize, anyone who's lived any number of years, that there is often a disparity between the things we seek that we believe will make us happy and that which actually makes us happy. That we often pursue things thinking they will make us happy, and maybe they do for a fleeting moment, but they cannot bring us true happiness. Well, here's a, a few examples of it. Uh, even good things, like marriage. We have been catechized by uh, Disney for our entire lives to think that there is someone out there, our soulmate, who is going to complete us and fulfill us in every way. They are going to speak all of our love languages, and we are going to ride off into the sunset happily ever after because they are the perfect Prince Charming or Disney princess for me. And then you go on your honeymoon, and you realize that that man that you married doesn't even put the cap back on the toothpaste after he uses it, if he brushes his teeth twice a day like he should. And that your wife, when she takes the bread out and uses it, does not put the little twisty around the neck of the bread bag, nor does she twist the bag and set the top of it under the weight of the bread so as to keep it fresh. No. What does she do? She simply places the bag back into the pantry where it can grow stale before it's time. <laughs> Obviously, those are fun examples and true. The reality is that the average age of divorce is 30. And it's a huge problem because people go into marriage thinking it's going to make them happy and then realizing it, that it cannot ultimately make them happy. People do the same thing with our jobs, and we find that even in our work, which is a good thing given to us by God, it cannot withstand the pressure that we place on it. And so we continue to climb the ladder, we continue to seek these goals, hoping that the next raise, the next uh, rung of the ladder that we climb will make us happy, but then we just find out that there's always more to achieve, there's always more that we want. As our standard of living raise, so does our taste. Perhaps some of you this morning 
are New England sports fans and you have long experienced the joy of belonging to one of New England, one of the country's greatest sports cities. I mean, multiple World Series in the last 20 years, six Super Bowls, and I would comment on basketball and hockey, but I got to be honest, I don't really pay attention. We did, all right, all right. You've experienced a wonderful last 20 years, and then you look up, and all of a sudden, your football team is two and nine. And you find that your source of joy has eluded you. And you wonder, should I become a Jaguars fan? <laughs> it's a, something that many people go through, I understand. Well, we look for all kinds of things that we believe will make us happy in life. But what if I told you that Mary, the mother of Jesus, discovered the true meaning of happiness and the true source of happiness long before she ever gave birth to Jesus. This morning we're going to look at the Magnificat, which is a magnificent, no that didn't work out, a magnificent uh, exposition of the gospel. But before we do, I want to just briefly look at the texts leading up to that. So open your Bibles to Luke 1, 26, and I just want to, I just want to look at what actually happens here before we get to the song. It says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth. He sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never had the experience of meeting an angel bringing uh, me in person the word of the Lord. It's got to be a rather remarkable thing. And understandably, Mary is greatly troubled and didn't know what was going on. So the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. And then he brings her kind of an incredible piece of news, a piece of news that would be very difficult to believe. He says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. So you're going to give birth to a son who is the son of God. And also, I'm going to give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, do any of you currently know of a kingdom that has never ended? I guess there are occasionally, there are kingdoms now that haven't ended yet, but every empire, every kingdom comes to an end. And Mary asks a question, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. Virgins cannot conceive. That's not how it works. And the angel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, as proof of this, as proof that this is going to come true, your cousin, Elizabeth, she who is called barren, she who was understood to be incapable of conceiving, she's not only pregnant, she's in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. I just want to point out as we talk about that, that if you are one of the 99% of people who believe that there is a God and that God created everything, then the virgin birth really isn't that much of a stretch of your faith. 
If God can create everything you see and everything you can't, surely the one who has that power can help a virgin to conceive. Now Mary does something remarkable. She hears this unbelievable statement from the Lord, and what does she say? She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Now Mary is very excited by the news, and she wants confirmation of it, so she travels to go see her cousin, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and Mary comes in, and Elizabeth heard the meeting, and the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaims to her, <coughs> Blessed are you, Mary, among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why should this be granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed, or happy, Happy is she who did what? Happy is she who believed what she heard from the Lord, that everything he said to her would be fulfilled. So why is Mary blessed? Why is she happy? Not because she was some important person. Not because she had done all of these great things. She's happy because she believed the word of God. And so then Mary is overcome with joy, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, she herself bursts out in prophetic song like it's a Disney musical. Only instead of teaching us to be self-absorbed, Mary's words are redemptive, and they point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the goodness of God. So as we consider Mary's song this morning, we're going to consider three of many, but we're just going to consider three, three of many reasons to rejoice in God this Christmas. I want to be clear, though, before we begin, that while God is kind and gracious to everyone, even those who reject him, he gives his very best blessings to those who receive his word with faith. Real and lasting happiness comes to those who believe. And so for the believer this morning, these are three reasons you can rejoice in God this Christmas. And if you're not there yet, we're happy that you're here. We're thrilled that you're here. I want you to consider these three reasons to believe in God. So pick up with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, for the first song of Christmas. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning celebrating the incarnation of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy is your name. God, you are merciful, you are mighty, you are matchless in your worth, in your glory, in your divine power, in all of your magnificence. You alone are God and worthy of our praise. Be near to us. Fix our eyes on your glory. Speak to us through your word. Use my weakness to demonstrate your power through the preaching of your word. 
We ask this in your holy and precious name, because of the blood of your Son, and not because of our own works. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our first reason this morning why you should rejoice in Christmas is this. Because God loves the humble. Isn't that good news? God loves the humble. And this is a little different than human love. If we just take some time to think about human love, we would recognize that all of human love is, at least in some way, reciprocal. And what I mean by that is, when we choose to love, we are expecting to receive something in return. Now, that doesn't always mean it's exploitative, but there's a reciprocality to it. That's not what God's love is like. As humans, we find ourselves gravitating toward those who are in some way more advanced than us. Perhaps they are higher up on the corporate ladder. Perhaps they are higher up in social standing. Or, or perhaps they uh, are wealthier than us. And so we tend to cozy up to those kind of people for what they can do for us. Even the Proverbs say this. Proverbs 14, 20 says this. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Why does the rich have many friends? Well, because he has many riches. Here's the difference with God's love. And I want you to think about this because this is the most profound thing you will hear all day. I promise it. God cannot get anything from us which he does not already possess. Say that again. God cannot get anything from us which he does not already possess. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. Which means that his love for us is pure. It has nothing to do with what we can do for him. Consider this. God loves us because God loves us. I want you to repeat after me. God loves us because why? God loves us. Go home and think on that. This is the most profound thing that you can think about. God loves us because he wants to. There is nothing that we have done that has caused God to love us. And God in his love, his gracious love, shows particular kindness to the humble. Those who recognize we bring nothing to the table with God. As opposed to those who think that God would be lucky to have them on God's team. And so Mary, she comes at the beginning of this song. In her heart, the deepest longings of her soul are joyful. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's saying, it is my deepest desire to make much of God's name. To exalt the Holy One of Israel. And in a parallel statement, she says, my spirit rejoices in God. She's full of joy, rejoicing in God, my Savior. Now, I'll just mention this in passing. Uh, if you're from a, a Catholic background, perhaps you've been taught that Mary was sinless and immaculately conceived and had no need of a Savior. I'll just point you that Mary considers God her Savior. Uh, no one has ever kept the law of God perfectly, including Mary. And yet, God loves her as he loves us. Now, we want to ask the question, why is Mary rejoicing in God? She gives us two reasons here. Look at verse 48. For he, God, has looked on the estate 
on the humble estate of his servant. Notice that when God was looking for a vehicle for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he didn't choose some famous ancient woman like Cleopatra or Herod's wife or anyone else that was well known. Mary is from some small village called Nazareth in Galilee. She is an unknown person, and apart from the love of God for her, she would have been totally forgotten to the pages of history. In other words, she's humble, she's insignificant, and she knows it. And yet, she is favored by God. So she can say, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Because I'm so great? No, but because God has blessed me. And in the verse 50, she says, not only has he blessed me, but his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So she says, not only has he shown kindness and love to me, but his mercy is available to all. A subset to all who fear God. This is really good news for sinners. And this is really infuriating news for the self-righteous. I don't need God's mercy, the Pharisee would say. But God's mercy is for all who fear him. But of course, if God has to be merciful to us, then that means that something is wrong with us. This is called the bad news of the gospel. That means that in some way, we, as the catechism pointed out, have violated the law of God. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. But we have, through our nature and through our actions, we have violated the law of God. We are sinners. And if something isn't done, if God doesn't find a way to show us mercy, then we will face the justice of God. But we're celebrating Christmas because God found a way to show us mercy. And he is merciful to all who fear him. Everyone who's humble enough to accept the grace of God through faith and not of works receives the grace of God. That is the good news of Christmas. Well, let's move on. The second reason that you can rejoice this Christmas, not only does God love the humble, not only does God love those that society tends to overlook, but God is both mighty and good. Pick up with me in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were conversing with a small business owner. And to be honest, this guy was pretty discouraged, pretty downcast. He had poured an enormous amount of human capital and actual capital into starting this business. And several years in, it wasn't looking good. He said, if we make it another year, it will be a miracle. And as we got talking, he said, I've worked so hard at this. My wife and I have tried to do things the right way. We've always been honest when it came to taxes. We've always paid full price for everything, and yet with rising costs and rising taxes, it has been nearly impossible to turn a profit. 
And the frustrating thing he said is, is I, I look around and I see my peers in the same field. And I know for a fact that they're cutting corners. I know that they're cheating on their taxes. I know that they're finding ways to thrive. And here I am trying to do things the right way. And I'm going to go out of business. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever looked around at the world and you've seen the wicked thriving? You've seen people who have no regard for God doing really well? The psalmist actually asks the very same question in Psalm 73. You can turn there if you like. But he, he says, I was envious, in verse 3, of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are sleek and fat. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They scoff and speak with malice. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And then they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That's the psalmist speaking to God, saying, God, I look out and I see the prosperity of the wicked and it bothers me. God, what are you doing? Mary has good news for us. God is both mighty and he is good. If God were just mighty and not good, then he would have the means to govern justly, but not the desire. If God were good and not mighty, he might have the desire, but not the power. But we're encouraged because God is both mighty and good. And when we worry that God is not executing justice, we can take a reminder from Mary to expand the horizon of our scope of time. Mary's saying, just wait. The psalmist is saying, just wait. So she praises God for the way he governs his world. He is both good and mighty. Look at verse 51. It says, he shows his strength with his arm. This is a, uh, an illustrative way of talking about God's actions. What does God do? Now, she's going to speak in the past tense here, and there's a little bit of debate as to whether she's speaking of something that's already happened, uh, as in Isaiah 53, like the, the Old Testament prophets talked about the future in the past tense. It's a common thing. Or is she talking about something exclusively in the future? Is it past or is it future? I don't think we have to, I don't think we have to, to, to take a, a side on that, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God has always governed justly. So what does God do? How does he show strength with his arm? Well, first, he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Part of God's goodness is that he does not tolerate wickedness. That if you expand your horizon long enough, you will see that God does deal with all sin in this life and the next. And that is part of his Goodness to not allow injustice to persist. What's the second thing he does with the strength of his arm? He brings down the mighty from their thrones. The Bible is absolutely clear that God is the one who places rulers in positions of power. And he is also the one who removes them from positions of power. 
And so just as he can put them there, it says he brings down the mighty from their thrones. For those who ultimately will not give regard to God, God will not give regard to them. And we have lots of historical examples from the scriptures we could talk about. And it says, though he fills the hungry with good things, he has sent away the rich empty. Again, we're reminded that God does deal with sin, and that is part of God's goodness. The psalmist here in Psalm 73 reminds us of the very same thing. He says, when I sought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He says, when I came into the presence of God, then I understood God. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, the psalmist says, I was the problem. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Dear friends, Christmas reminds us that we are the wicked who had no regard for God. And yet, God had regard for us, and he has rescued us, not because we were so awesome, but he rescued us because he loves us, and he used the blood of his Son to do it. Well, just as God deals with evil, we also see in Mary's song positive things. He exalts the humble. He is against the prideful, but in verse 52, he exalted those of humble estate. Consider the example of Mary. Consider that all 12 of Jesus' disciples were not men of standing. They were fishermen, tax collectors, uneducated, ordinary people. And he has filled the hungry with good things. As James says in James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Mary is full of joy because though in our lives we can, we can zoom in on a particular moment of time and get frustrated by the way that things are going, but Mary sees the bigger picture under the influence of the Holy Spirit. She understands the character of God, that he is mighty and that he is good. And she expresses faith that he will continue doing both, being both in the future. And she trusts that this coming Messiah in her womb will ultimately bring about a new world without sin, without suffering, without pain or evil but that now was the time for him to go to the cross to rescue people like her and like me and like you. So God loves the humble. God is mighty and good. Our last reason to rejoice is the best reason of all of them. God keeps his promises. Pick up with me in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. As Christians, we are a people of hope. 
Our hope is now, and it is also not yet. When we look to the future, we are called to trust that God will keep his promises to us. That he will breathe new life into our mortal bodies. That when we die, we will go into the presence of the Lord. That he cares for us eternally. That his love for us is everlasting. That Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. But how do you trust, or rather, how do you learn to trust that someone, anyone, will keep their promises? Well, trust is earned. You develop a reputation. Trust is earned when someone's words, over time, match their actions. In fact, the fastest way for anyone to lose trust is to renege on their promises. So how do we learn to trust God? Well, we consider the promises which God made in the past, and they give us confidence that God will keep his promises in the future. And this is exactly what Mary is saying. Consider God's promises. In verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. This is very important. She's saying God has kept his promises to Israel, not because Israel deserved it, not because Israel was such a shining example of the gospel. Just read the Old Testament and you will, you will find that to be the case. God remembered his promises because he is remembering his mercy. God relates to all of us in mercy. And that's a wonderful thing. And she gives an example of it. How did God remember his promises and mercy? Well, as he spoke to our fathers. Now, Mary is Jewish, and she's speaking of her fathers, the Old Testament saints. Now, God makes hundreds of promises in the Old Testament, and God always keeps his promises. But we're just going to look at one because she's pointing our attention to one in particular. She mentions here to Abraham and to his offspring, or seed, depending on your translation, forever. This is a reference to a very specific promise. Perhaps you recall in Genesis chapter 12, when God first calls Abram, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And he makes promises. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's saying, Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing for everyone. Well, if you continue reading in Genesis, this promise is reiterated as God continues to tell Abraham more and more about his plans for him. It's reiterated in 15 and 17. And then finally we get to chapter 22, where God becomes most explicit with what he's saying to Abraham. Now, Genesis chapter 22 is the story of the binding of Isaac. So if you remember Abraham's story, you know that for many, many years, he's in his 70s, he's been praying to God, God, please give me a son. God, I have no heir. I'm in my 70s. My wife is barren, and I don't have a son. And he prays, and God says, I will give you a son. I'm going to make you more numerous than the sand on the seashore. And Abraham's like, that's great, God, but I'm still childless. God tells him to wait. I will fulfill my promise. And Abraham waits, and he waits, and he makes a mistake with Hagar. 
But then he continues, and he waits, and he waits. And God fulfills his promise to Abraham, and Sarah conceives miraculously in her 80s. And Isaac grows up, this beautiful son of promise. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take that which you love most, that which you cared about for so long, that you prayed for for so long, I want you to take that which you love most and give it to me. Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. Now we know, because we know the rest of the story, God would have never allowed him to do that. But he's testing his faith. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham was confident, even if he went through through with it, God could have raised Isaac from the grave. And so Abraham goes and God stops him, he says. He says, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord. Because you've done this and you've not withheld your son, your only son, only son, by the way. Did I mention it was his only son? I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, or in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. That's the promise Mary is referring to right there. In your offspring, one of your descendants, Abraham, through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He's saying, Abraham... What I prevented you from doing? Sacrificing your only son? Abraham, I'm going to do that for a sinful people that have rejected me. That which is most precious to me, I am going to give up so that I can redeem those in sin. I'm going to do the unthinkable, Abraham. And it is through your offspring, your descendant, and also through my son. That will be how I bless all the nations of the earth. We, like sheep, had all gone astray, and the Lord placed the iniquity of us all on Christ, the descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. And this is exactly where Paul goes in Galatians chapter 3. This is the meaning of Christmas. We celebrate the Christ child, but the Christ child wouldn't mean anything if this wasn't true. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's the nations, the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. God is talking about the blessing of reconciliation with God. Oh yeah, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God's talking about reconciliation with God. That it is through the seed of Abraham that God would reconcile all nations to himself. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. God would call people to himself and he accomplished it through the seed or the offspring of Abraham. That which he promised 2,000 years before Christ, he brought to fruition. And Mary recognizes that when she receives this news about the baby. This is the fulfillment 
of the promise that we've been waiting for. God will make us right through this little baby. Just as Abraham believed God, Mary believes God. And God uses Mary to bring the blessing of justification to all the nations, to reconcile sinners from all nations to himself. This is why Christmas is such an exciting time. This is why we have reason to rejoice, because on our own we could not come to God. But he sent his son, the seed of Abraham, to die on the cross for sinners like us. Praise God. We all want to be happy. And Christmas is a time for rejoicing. And so I just want to leave you with two exhortations or applications this morning for for our believers here this morning. Here's my exhortation. If you want to be happy, here it is. First of all, take Mary's example. When you come to the word of the Lord, believe it. It's really simple. Believe the word of the Lord. Trust in Jesus. And if you really want to experience the joy of the Lord, I'm not saying life will be easy in any way. In fact, in some ways it's harder to follow Christ. But if you want to be truly happy in God, then take Mary's example. And when you hear the word of the Lord, say to God and mean it, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. You approach God with open hands and you say, I am your servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. Offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. And watch God do something incredible.